Anyway, Father, we pray tonight over the Word of God. This is an important word, so make sure you get this. But Lord, I pray tonight that there'll be an open heaven, your blessing on the Word tonight. Lord, that you'll come mightily upon me and, and speak through me your words, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to really get everything out of this tonight. So I really believe tonight's Word could change people's life in an awesome way if they'll really lay hold of it. And Lord, I pray that you'll speak through me your words of life. Let it go out as living seeds sown in a good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives. Watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Lord, that you would allow your word, Lord, to really go forward as light, dispelling any darkness, bringing truth as the washing of the water of the word, but also that your precious Holy Spirit really captivate us and help us to give you our best ear for our full attention, our focus, and get locked in on everything that you have for us. In Jesus' mighty name. Lord, we thank you for it. It says, as a pastor, your heart is that people really get hold of these things I'm going to preach tonight. It always saddens me, and my wife and I talk about sometimes when people miss sermons that I know could really help them, you know. It's, it's, a, it's something that a pastor deals with, a pastor's heart. But this sermon tonight, I know those that are here, those that are hearing this, I really believe that some of this could really radically transform your life, okay? So please lock in. Those that are going to be hearing this through um, podcasts and different means through the Internet, really, really just slow things down and listen to this tonight. Hear my heart. This is something that's really helped me a lot. I'm going to talk a little bit about, I entitled it Rosh Hashanah and the coming bridegroom because um, of the feast day known as Yom Teruah in the Bible. And last week I dealt with living with eternity in mind, remember that? And making your life a dwelling place for God's manifest presence and leaving a legacy. That's what we dealt with. But this week I want to take a little bit different angle. And I'm still dealing with communion. We'll kind of close out the communion aspect. And I'm going to start transitioning into some other things that have to do with our Hebrew roots. But in John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus said this, Verily, I, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Isn't that something? Deuteronomy 28, 12. When Israel was obedient to the Lord, he said, I will open for you the good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in season and bless the works of your hands. And you will lend to nations and not borrow. But when Israel was disobedient, they were in sin. And this is unfortunately where I think sometimes a lot of people out there are, and unfortunately a lot of different ministries and churches out there, it says, the heaven that's over your head will be bronze. The earth which is under you will be iron. And the Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it will come down on you until you're destroyed. And the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And so the first thing I want to talk about is an open heaven. Now, spiritually speaking, that's I can't go into this real deep, okay, but... Just in a real quick sense, we know that the second heaven is where the demonic, the principalities and powers and wickedness in the heavenlies. 
Paul said, I was caught up to the third heaven. The third heaven is where God's throne is, okay? So to get from here to God's throne, you've got to get through that second heaven. And those that are living right and doing right, there can be literally an open heaven where the darkness, the wickedness, and the heavenlies are parted out of your way to the left and to the right. And because of there being an open heaven, the presence of God comes down in an awesome way in your midst. There's angels ascending and descending. It's different. You live under an outpouring of the Spirit. You live under God's blessing and holy angelic activity. And it's a different life. But if people are living in sin and they're not doing right, the heavens will brass over where there's princes and powers overhead and it'll feel like that your prayers are just hitting the ceiling and coming back down. The earth beneath you is iron. You try to do things for the kingdom and it seems like it's very difficult to get anything done of spiritual eternal significance. And instead of the outpouring of the rain, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and God's blessing showering down upon them, it seems like things are sterile and they're dry. I've been places where it was hard to worship. Several times. I've been places where it seemed like the atmosphere was very sterile. And it was hard to press into God. And it was a brass heaven. It was sterile. And then it said that this would end up being like being defeated by your enemies. But the Lord is wanting us to be victorious over our enemies. And so as we cultivate a life where there's an open heaven overhead and God's blessings coming down, that's where things will change. Now I want everybody to really lock into what I'm about to say. All right, this is really what I wanted to share that I feel like would change people's lives, people that are here to hear it. And I don't like sharing stuff like this publicly because those that know me, I don't talk about a lot of personal stuff from the pulpit. I just don't. There's a lot of things I don't talk about. But I felt the Holy Spirit wanted me to share this because I feel like it would really help some people. And so I understand something about an open heaven that's really changed my life in a big way. And it all goes back to understanding the promises of God in the scriptures. And let me explain what I mean. So, it's me taking the breath, just sharing things that are personal. I can do it. I believe. Thank you, Lord. Grace. But anyway, so, as I understand it, the Bible talks about, in James chapter 5, that the prayers of a righteous man. Now, we know the King James, the effectual fervent prayers of the righteous. But the Amplified says the prayers of the righteous make tremendous power available. Dynamic in its working. And I really like that translation. So I know that as long as I'm righteous, y'all hear what I'm saying? As long as I'm going to confess anything I need to, make sure I forgive people, I'm going to keep myself holy and pure. I know that as long as I'm in right standing, that my prayers according to the Bible, this isn't like me coming up with this, the Bible says my prayers make tremendous power available, dynamic, and it's working. So that's the first thing. And that's where I believe that the, one of the power um, points, if you will, about communion is that it gives us a chance individually, those that take communion on your own, 
It gives you a chance individually to examine yourself and come under that blood of Jesus and really make sure things are right. All right, so that's the first thing. Then the second thing is that we have this Watchman program. And on Mondays is my day. And I'm, I'm a stickler about this. If I make a commitment to the Lord, I stick with my commitments. I don't miss a Monday. I told him that's what I would do. That's what I do. And so on Mondays, that's my day to do some prayer and fasting. And I'm real consistent with it. And I've asked my wife, though, because I understand this principle. I understand that Isaiah 58 talks about the power of not only a righteous person praying, but now fasting. And Isaiah 58 shows us that fasting helps to loose the, the chains of bondage and break heavy yokes off. That fasting, as you pray and fast, the Bible says that your light will break forth like the dawn, your healing quickly appear, your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord be your rear guard. But on top of that, it simply says if you, if you pray and fast, God promises that he will do what you're asking. So prayer and fasting mixed together. I'm going somewhere with this. So first you have faith in the fact that I'm righteous and I'm praying. And the Bible says that my prayers will be powerful. Then you mix fasting in that. And you've got promises that are connected to fasting that are not connected to anything else. So then I've asked my wife, and a lot of times I'll ask my daughter as well, but I'll make a list of things that I'm really believing for because it's important to me. And this is totally independent of the church. This is just something that I'm, I'm doing on my own. And so I make a list of things, a lot of which will have to do with the church. And I'll ask my wife if she would agree with me because I understand that the Bible says if two of you will agree on earth as touching anything, it will be done. And one will chase a thousand, two ten thousand. So first, I'm trying to show something about an open heaven and really getting major breakthroughs. I understand that if I'm righteous and I pray, God's going to move. If I mix fasting in, it makes things much more powerful and intense. And now I've got other people agreeing with me. So I understand the power of agreement. And this has really, really impacted my life. And then I understand this. So now I'm mixing another ingredient. So you've got righteous prayer, unified prayer, fasting going on. And the Lord has shown me and taught me about also the power of giving. Now, we're talking about an open heaven versus a bronze heaven. And my wife and I have always been tithers because... Um, we believe very strongly that if you tithe, um, that you're, first off, people that don't tithe, I believe that they're stealing from the Lord. I really do. They're taking what belongs to God and using it for other things, and that's not right. But anyway, we tithe, and the Bible says for tithers, what does it say? I will open the heavens. There you have an open heaven. I will pour out more blessings than there's room enough to contain it, and then it goes on to say, nations will rise to call you blessed. So you have that open heaven. You have the, the devourer being rebuked back. And you have the outpouring of God's blessings. So we've lived a life of tithing. And then I understand the Bible that giving to the poor is a very big deal with God. 
And so I've told my wife I want to make sure we give above our tithe where we're, we're going to use that because that comes in from other people too. And so there's this money coming in to, to bless the poor and to bless Israel as well. And so I understand Psalms 41, which says that if you regard the poor, and that's financially for sure, but also I know touching hearts is reaching out to the poor. But as our church is reaching out to the poor and as we're giving to the poor, the Bible says that you will be counted among the blessed of the land. You will not be given over to the desires of your enemies. That God will be with you in any trouble to deliver you out of it. He'll heal you from any sickness and raise you up out of any sickbed. Those are some pretty big promises. Think about that. And so I understand this about giving to the poor. And I also understand the principle that if you bless Israel, God will bless you. And it's significant. And so what I've been doing for some time, and I'm, I'm sharing this. It's a personal thing. But anyway, this is something I felt God wanted me to share. But as I do this on Mondays, here's what I have felt. I have felt because of all those ingredients being mixed in. We're already tithing. We're not stealing from God. We do that. But then you have giving to the poor and blessing Israel too. That I go in there and I have this place where I pray. And because of technology, I mean, you can give online. So you can just give right there, you know. And so I have this place that I pray. I want you to imagine this. You got this place that you pray every day. And from this place, you have Holy Communion there the blood you have worship and prayer you have fasting you have other people that are in agreement with what you're praying and now you're giving to the poor you're blessing israel you're sowing into the kingdom and from that place i have felt exactly and i couldn't really put my finger on how to describe it until i read that scripture i gave you guys about cornelius it has felt like a memorial offering going up in the God. It has honestly just felt like something just going right up before him. And it's a very, very powerful thing. I mean, I feel an open heaven. I feel his blessing and his favor. And I'm sharing that because I believe if people will begin to apply these principles to your life. And that's why when I tell people, like, for example, about the Passover offering, I tell people, I'm not saying that just to say it. I mean, really, when people do things like that, it, it really is a significant thing. It's something that's going up as a memorial offering before the Lord, and it, it really releases something in your life. It's a powerful thing. All right, so that has to do with an open heaven. And read these scriptures that I, I've mentioned. You know, the prayer of the righteous, the two agreeing on earth. You have the fasting, Isaiah 58. Regarding the poor, Psalm 41. And tithing, Malachi chapter 3, I believe. And then you have um, blessing Israel. There's scriptures like Genesis, um, I think it's around maybe 12 or something, where it talks about if you bless, I will bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you. And so all of these different promises of God, and you're practicing all this, it helps cause the heavens to be open and God's presence and power to come down. And so I'm sure that many of you feel this way, but I want an open heaven over my life. I want an open heaven over my home, and it is. And I want an open heaven over this ministry, and it is. 
But you can't put up with any funny business. You have to have a home that's in order, and you have to have a ministry that's in order. Remember that. One of the ways Satan will close the heavens very quickly is by having dishonor and disrespect toward authority or having division in the camp and having things that are out of order, having wrong people in leadership that shouldn't be there. When things are not the way they're supposed to be, it will try to brass those heavens. And so you have to keep things in proper biblical order. All right, so that's about an open heaven. All that that mixture of worship and prayer and giving and all of that, it's a memorial offering unto God. And think about Cornelius. I know I mentioned that earlier, but Cornelius, there was a great revival broke out in his whole household because of his prayers and his alms to the poor. And think about this, that an angel of the Lord was sent to him to tell him that. Isn't that awesome? All right, here's the next point I want to talk about. As I'm transitioning now, I've I've mentioned some things about the communion. I've mentioned about water immersion. And I want to show you the power of anointing with oil. And then I want to talk a little bit about the preparation of the bride and then about the power of the shofar. Because I'm, I'm trying to bring in some understanding about the Hebrew roots because of how important these things are. So regarding the anointing with oil, in Exodus 40, verse 2, it says, On the first day of the first month, you will set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. So this is just a couple weeks before Passover in the Bible. Today it would be Nisan 1, okay, in the Hebrew calendar. And Moses was supposed to set up the tabernacle, and God told him how to do it. I want you to notice a couple things. That he had to, Moses had to get out there, it's about the size of a football field, and had to put up that big tent around it, okay? He had to set up the, the holy place and the holy of holies and what was called the Mishkin over the top. He had to do all that. And then go in, starting in the holy of holies, he had to put the Ark of the Covenant there. And I want you to notice this. When he came out, he said, you're to put the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant there. And then you're going to put the screen that blocks the Holy of Holies. Then you're going to set up the table of showbread. And so God, automatically right there, you see that there's a connection between the Ark of the Covenant and the table of showbread. Are y'all seeing that? The table of showbread is the communion table. There is a connection between the communion table and and the glory where the blood is applied that's where the glory will come and so Moses God told him how to do it he had to start in the holy of holies then he came out to the holy place he set up the table the lampstand the golden altar then he had to back out into the holy of the outer court and he had to set up the bronze altar and the laver and as he did that God told him this He said, I want you, and this is verse 9 right here, then you will take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it. You will consecrate it and its furnishings, and it will be holy. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Did everybody see that? So Moses goes in. I want you to picture this. He goes in and sets up the Ark of the Covenant. He anoints it with oil. 
He goes in the holy place and he's got the table of showbread and its utensils. He's anointing all of this with oil. He anoints the golden altar. He anoints the lamps and he comes out. He's anointing everything. So everything in the tabernacle had that anointing oil on it. And after he set it apart like that, it's holy. The Bible says that the glory of God settled into that tabernacle. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud has settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now look at this. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire in it by night, and it was in the sight of all the house of Israel. And so what I'm sharing here is a couple things. We have to understand that this is a picture and type, a shadow of what we have the fullness of in Christianity today. What Israel had in the natural, we have in the spiritual. And today, just like the cloud of the Lord would pick up and begin to move, that was the Spirit of God moving, and Israel had to follow that cloud. In the same way today, we've got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and we have got to be led by the Spirit of God in everything that we do. And we have to make God's presence a priority. Israel was to follow the presence of God. If, if we were to move in one direction and God's presence did not go with us, you need to back up and ask forgiveness and say, Lord, restore your presence. Leonard Ravenhill said this. He said that there's a particular denomination, and I'm not going to say which one, but he said, by and large, the glory has departed. And he said, what would it look like next, next Sunday if all the leadership had sent out you know, emails to all the different pastors and said, next Sunday, you're shutting down all Sunday services. You're not going to do anything except this. You're going to call all your people to humble themselves in prayer and fasting and ask God's forgiveness and ask for the glory to come back. He said, if they would do that, the glory of God would explode in the denomination again. But it's, it's never happened to this day. So what happens a lot of times is people begin to minimize the importance of God's presence. Wherever we're moving, his presence has got to be among us. What did Moses say, even in the Old Testament? He said, God, if your presence is not going to go with us, please don't send us up from here. What will distinguish us from any other nations? They have gods. They have their writings. They have all these idols. They have temples. They're spiritual people. The only thing that really distinguishes us from them is your presence with us. So don't make us leave here without your presence. But the anointing is what set things apart. And so that's why many times when I pray for people in the altar, the Bible says in the book of James chapter 5, it says that the elders, if anybody is sick among you, let them call upon the elders of the church to anoint them with oil and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. And so there's this anointing with oil and this prayer of faith and there's healing. And anybody that's read the Gospels, you know, that Jesus sent out 70. And as the 70 went out, it says specifically in the Bible that they, some of them had anointing oil 
and they would anoint the people, and those that they anointed and prayed for were being healed from sickness, and demons were leaving people. And so you see this Old Testament pattern where the tabernacle was anointed and set apart, and then the glory came. All right. So now the tabernacle is the same principle as the temple. So who now is the tabernacle or the temple of the Spirit? We are. And so when I'm going through these altar times, I'm praying for people. Many times I like to anoint them with oil because I'm simply doing what Moses showed us is the pattern. I'm anointing you as the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit for God's glory to fill and saturate you. And a lot of people don't know this, but I've gone through and anointed my home and the glory has come into my home. And I've gone through here and anointed this place and the glory has come in this place. So it's a matter of setting things apart as holy unto God. There's a protocol of heaven. God is not going to, contrary to what some people out there might teach, God is not going to habitate places that are sinful and defiled. He's not going to habitate there. He may visit there. He may pass through, but he's not going to continually dwell there. There's a difference. We can go into some very deep, dark places with the gospel, and Jesus will show up because he loves those people. He'll show up in great power. He'll raise the dead. He'll heal the sick. But for us to have a place where God tabernacles his presence continually, it needs to be a holy place. And see, this was the mistake that many of the priests made. When Aaron and his four sons were called into the priesthood, the first two sons were Nadab and Abihu. And we can deduct, and many scholars agree with me about what I'm going to tell you, but we can kind of deduct from what happened, first off, that they were drinking. Because right after they died, God made, he instituted this and said, priests are not to drink and enter my presence. Okay, so many scholars believe that they were drinking. And while they were drinking, they thought, hey, this is a good idea. Let's, let's just go into the Holy of Holies, burn in some incense, and just walk on in there. That's probably what happened, according to what people deduce from what, what they read there. And, of course, we know the story that God had to kill them. And so there goes Nadab and Abihu. So now you've got two more sons of Aaron, Ithamar and Eleazar. Ithamar, his bloodline goes all the way down to Eli. And Ithamar was the one, his bloodline was really the ones that were um, talked about up until the time of Eli as being the priesthood that was really used of God. But when Eli comes to power and he's there ministering in the tabernacle as the high priest of Israel, here's the problem. He had two sons that he was not correcting them and they were having sex with women at the tabernacle. They, they were um, taking the offerings they were not supposed to take for themselves, and they were defiling God's temple. And God rebuked Eli through Samuel and told him that he was going to have to kill him and his descendants and, and end that Ithamar bloodline. God was going to have to end it because Eli refused to keep that tabernacle holy. He refused to deal with sin in the camp. This will not make you popular, but if you refuse to deal with sin in the camp in the church, the glory will leave. That's just the way that it is. And there will be people that don't like you if you're a pastor that won't put up with it. 
There will be people that, and there will be people that get mad, and there'll be people that think you're too hard. But at the end of the day, I would rather have some people not like me and have the glory. But God ended up killing Eli and his sons, and he wiped out that bloodline. So the only other priestly bloodline was Eleazar. And you read about that bloodline down through whenever King David was in power and the priest Zadok that was with him, all the way down into the days of Jesus where um, Zechariah, whose son was John the Baptist, that was that bloodline that went back to Eleazar. And John the Baptist was the last in that line that we know about in the Bible. I know that there were others, but the last that we read about that. But he baptized Jesus. He was passing the priesthood to him. I mean, oh, Jesus is the great high priest. Amen. All right, so for us to have the glory, we've got to be willing to deal with this sin in the camp business and have a holy place for God to dwell. Um, There's a, a Jewish book called the Midrash. It's interesting because it said that the tabernacle of Moses that was made was actually all the, the parts and the pieces and all the furniture and everything was finished on Kislev 25th. Now, Kislev 25th is, is actually Hanukkah. And it would be interesting to me if this is true because what is Hanukkah all about? It's about cleansing the altar and the temple um, and making it holy again. So this is the power of the anointing oil to set apart as holy for God to come. And let me make one more statement. I'm going to transition. There was a man named Bezalel. He was of the tribe of Judah. You guys remember when Moses had his arms up and Aaron and Hur had to be on each side to help hold his arms up? All right, Hur on the right was of the tribe of Judah. And his grandson was Bezalel. And his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson was King David. And we know that King David, of course, in the line of that tribe of, of Judah, that bloodline from King David, of course, came Jesus. And so this man, Bezalel, of the tribe of Judah, was the one that God put his hand mightily upon to create all of the tabernacle furniture and all the curtains and everything. Now, how would you like the whole nation that Moses looks at you and says, hey, you're the guy. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to make all of the Ark of the Covenant with these angels, the cherubim, and the lampstand. And all this has to be to exact specifications, by the way. But you're going to make all this beautiful stuff. And you're also going to make all the curtains and everything. How would you like to be that guy? But the Bible says the Spirit of God was upon Bezalel, and he knew how to do this. The Holy Spirit enabled him to do it. And he constructed, he created all of that furniture. He created all of that tapestry. And he did it exactly to God's um, specifications. Now, what's interesting is this. I believe that the greatest calling of any type of apostolic or prophetic or pastoral type ministries, the greatest calling, first and foremost, is to create a dwelling place for God to come and dwell there. That's number one. That's just my opinion about it, but I believe that's number one. I believe if you, if you miss that, everything else is not ever going to be what it should be. Number one should be that God dwells where you're ministering. So for you to be somebody that can construct the tabernacle according to the specifications of God, 
to help create a place for God's glory to come and meet with people. Here's what I believe. Bezalel, his name comes from two words in Hebrew, Bezalel, which is shadow, and El, which is God. So his name means the shadow of God. You know what I think of when I read that? Psalm 91. He that is a secret place dweller will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. You know what I believe God's trying to say here? If you're going to be somebody that's going to construct a tabernacle, for God to come dwell among men, first and foremost, you better be a secret place dweller. You better learn how to get under the shadow of his wings and spend time with him intimately. You and him. Because it's out of that intimate relationship that God will teach you and he'll train you and he'll equip you and he'll deal with the stuff he needs to deal with but he'll, you'll develop a relationship with him where you learn how to host his presence in your personal life. How are you supposed to host God's presence publicly when you can't even host it in your own personal life? And it's interesting because Moses, you know, Moses took Israel to Mount Sinai and here at Mount Sinai, God comes down on the mountain. The fire of God is burning at the top of the mountain. There's smoke. His voice is like a shofar. It's an earthquake. The whole nation, Moses takes an entire nation to have an encounter with the power of God. But Moses could have never done that, took a nation to encounter God's fire in his presence and power unless Moses had had a personal burning bush experience in the first place. So Moses had to have a personal encounter with God before he could help others have an encounter with God. I'm just trying to help people understand the power of the anointing with oil in this. God wants us to set, he wants to set us apart as a holy tabernacle, a holy temple for his glory to dwell in and upon us. And also in your home and in a church. All right, the next thing, because this all goes together, the next thing I want to say is the great preparation. Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. There's the part that we play and then the part that God plays. The Bible says, draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. Everybody catch that. There's a part that we do play in all this. The bride has made herself ready. There's a part that as God's bride that we do to make ourselves ready. And then there's the part that only he can do. We, if we've been liars, we can stop lying. (laughs) If we've been stealing stuff, we can stop stealing. Also, the power of the communion table, that we can help, it can help consecrate our lives. We can go through the power of water immersion and help consecrate our lives. The power of the anointing with oil to help consecrate our lives. There's a part that we can do to cleanse our way and to help prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord. But ultimately, we cannot do everything. And so there comes a point in time where you've done what you can do, but then God's got to step in. And that's where the Holy Spirit will move in your life to finish that consecration that only He can do. Because God consecrates, when you read about the tabernacle, God had mentioned that He consecrated that thing with His presence. You know, Moses could go in there, 
And there could be blood applied. There could be the water of immersion there with the laver. He could anoint it with oil. He could do his part. But then God had to come do the rest. And God came and dwelt there and he sanctified it with his presence. So what I'm saying is, is we can do our part. But ultimately there's things in all of us that only God can do. There's things that only God can heal. There's things that only God can really take out of us. There's things that only the power of the Holy Spirit can transform us. And so as we do our part, God will do his part. And so let me show you the pattern. The Lord is trying to prepare us for the catching away of the bride. Now I want you to notice this. It starts out with Passover, then Pentecost, then you have the Feast of Trumpets. Yom Teruah. Passover is the washing of the blood and the washing of immersion. Pentecost is the anointing with oil and the Holy Spirit filling and empowering us. Then you have Yom Teruah. You have the blasting of the shofar, the catching away the bride. Does everybody see the pattern? We, the, the Passover's first. It's where the blood and the washing of the water helps consecrate. Then Pentecost, where God, by his anointing, the power of the Holy Spirit, helps to consecrate. And this is getting us ready. God is sanctifying us, and he's getting us ready for the Feast of Trumpets. And that's the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, the catching away of the bride. And God's trying to prepare a bride for his coming. He's calling us to consecrate ourselves as a bride. Here's the sudden catching away in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, that those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. As how many knows when people in the world die, it's like, well, where do they go and what happens to them? You know, they don't know. But those of us that are in Christ, we know that they're with the Lord. To be absent with the body is present with the Lord. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those that have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Remember that when I talked about the Jewish weddings, the, bride, the friends of the bridegroom would go in front shouting, Behold, the bridegroom comes. <laughs> and so the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. That's the shofar blast. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so there's that catching away where the Lord, his feet is not on the Mount of Olives. He didn't come back to reign for a thousand years yet. This is the catching away, the stealing away of his bride to the marriage supper. And this is what I believe the Holy Spirit is preparing right now. He's calling people back to the communion table. He's calling people back to understand the Hebrew roots and understand the power of things like water immersion and the anointing with oil because God is wanting to consecrate and prepare a bride for his coming. And Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, is the next thing. And, that, and it's interesting because it talked about 
the last trump, and a lot of people don't understand that, but Paul never explained the last trump because these people would have understood Hebrew roots. And there was no reason to explain it. Every Yom Teruah, the Rosh Hashanah time, the Feast of Trumpets, in synagogues, there'll be the blasting of the shofar. They have to blast the shofar around a hundred times. And there'll be somebody that's up there, a cantor, he's a singer, and he'll be saying, Shivarim, and they'll be blasting the shofar. And there's these four different distinct blasts. The first one is the, is the takia, and it's one good blast. Then the shivarim, which is three distinct blasts. Then the teruah, which is like a staccato sound. Da, 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 da. And then they keep doing this. Round and round it goes. Till around a hundred times, the guy will call it out to Kia. The different shofars there will blast it. Shivarim, they'll blast three distinct times. Teruah, you hear it go throughout the synagogue. This goes on around a hundred times. And then it gets to the last trump. It's called the Great Takiyah. And it's wherever all the shofars at one time lift up the loud, strong blast and hold it as long as they can. That's the last trump. I believe there's some kind of a connection with that in the coming of the Lord. That whenever Jesus came the first time and he died, he died on Passover, the day of Passover. He was nailed to the cross at the morning sacrifice at 9 a.m. The sky grew dark at 12 o'clock when the evening sacrifice would have took place that day because it was moved back for Passover. And then he gave up the ghost at 3 o'clock when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. He died on Passover. While the Passover sacrifices were happening, distinct, significant things were happening to him. He was buried in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread because his body is without, without yeast, it's without sin. And he was in the tomb for three full days during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He raised from the dead on the day called First Fruits. He stayed and he appeared to people for around 40 days. He appeared to around 500 people. He told them then to go wait in Jerusalem. So they waited there around 7 to 10 more days, however many days exactly it was, till Pentecost. <laughs> but on the day of Pentecost, not the day before, not the day after, the, the Hebrew people would have called it Shavuot, which is the Feast of Weeks, but we call it Pentecost. When that day came, the Holy Spirit broke out on Pentecost. And the birth of the church to be clothed with power, and to go about doing the things that Jesus did while he was on the earth. You know, we are really supposed to be preaching the gospel. We really are supposed to be laying hands on the sick and see them recover. We really are supposed to be casting demons out of people. And the very next thing on the calendar is Yom Teruah, the trumpets, which speaks of the coming of the Lord, the catching away of his bride, is that shofar blast is going to sound and we're going to be caught away with the Lord. Then after that is Yom Kippur, which will be Israel's final cleansing, the days of Jacob's trouble, the seven-year tribulation, as Israel goes through a very difficult time and God is breaking that nation down to a place to where they'll be humble and broken before him, where they'll receive their Messiah. And then the final thing, the final feast is tabernacles. As Jesus comes to tabernacle on the earth and rule and reign for a thousand years. This is God's prophetic calendar. How many are excited about the, the, the day of the Lord to come? As that shofar blast sounds and we're caught up with him. 
You know, if he, if he comes after we're dead, we're still going to be caught up with him. You know, I know that our spirits are with him, but, but our bodies are going to be lifted up. We're going to be given glorified bodies, and, and we're going to be present with him at that shofar blast as he catches away the bride. And we're going to be able to go to that marriage supper of the Lamb. All right. And then the last thing I want to talk about is the power of the shofar. The burnt offering, there's five major offerings, but the burnt offering in the tabernacle time was an act of worship to God. And that people would go before the tabernacle. And this wasn't for sin. This wasn't that they were going there to get their sins atoned for. The burnt offering was just a worship to God. So they would bring an animal before the Lord at the tabernacle. And the priest would cut it up into five pieces and they would burn it on that bronze altar. And it would be completely burnt up where there was nothing left. It was completely burned with fire. The only thing that was left was some of the skin which was left with the priest. And in Romans chapter 12, here's the New Testament parallel. You know, we, we have this prayer sometimes we say here in River of Life, and tonight on, in that song, Send the Fire, it was in that song. See us on your altar lay. We give our lives to you today, so come crown this offering now we pray. Send your fire. That God is wanting us to lay our lives down on the altar as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, and that everything in us that is not what the Lord wants, that holy fire will burn all that pollution out. <clears throat> That's the picture and type of what was going on in the Old Testament with the burnt offering. But some of that skin was left for the priest. And how many of you guys know that as long as we're here on the earth, we still got this stinking sinful nature? that we're going to have to live with until we get glorified bodies, and we have to learn to die to it. And just like that burnt offering, even though it was all burnt up, there was still some skin left. But we have to learn how to be crucified with Christ. It's not us who live, but Him living through us. But God wants us to lay our lives down on the altar and let everything be burned out that He wants burned out. So here's the last thing I want to talk about is the shofar. The blast of the shofar was mixed up in all of that tabernacle worship. See, we talk about an open heaven. I'm trying to paint a picture of what I was talking about earlier in my sermon about prayer, the prayer of agreement, worship, fasting, giving, all of that coming together. And it was going up into God as a memorial offering through an open heaven. There's, there's something about that. But see, what you got to understand is during the days of the tabernacle, that that was what was continually going on in the tabernacle. As they were there every day, the priest had to keep that fire going. There was continual burning of incense worship. There was continual giving. All that was going on there, worship and the prayer and the giving and all that was going on in the tabernacle continually was like this fragrant incense unto God's throne through an open heaven. And part of that worship that would have been heard regularly at the tabernacle would have been the shofar blast. It was also sounded to help keep time <clears throat> because people were not keeping up with the feast days. I mean, these guys were out farming. They, they, were, they were, you know, shepherds. They were different things in Israel that they were working. And it was not really the job of all the people, per se, to keep up with these specific dates. It wasn't in a time where now you have an iPhone, you have your little calendar. 
Okay, I wasn't like that. And so it was the job of the priest, the Kohanim, that they were to keep up with it. And whenever the feast day started approaching and it was time for the people to gather because three times a year the men had to gather, what were they listening for? The shofar being blasted. And they would hear that shofar and they'd say, okay, it's time for me to start getting my things together and start moving toward Israel. It was at the shofar. So the shofar helped Israel to keep time. The first shofar supposedly, this is just traditions of men here, but supposedly came when God provided a substitute for Isaac that Abraham was going up with Isaac to sacrifice Isaac and whenever he raised the knife, the angel told him no, said there's a ram caught in the thicket. So he let Isaac out to Isaac's great relief, right? And he gets the ram, puts the ram up there, kills the ram. And it's believed that Moses cut off those two horns and made like a shofar out of them. And that's where the first shofar came from. That's just tradition, but maybe that's the way it was. But here's some things about the shofar that's really powerful. The Ark of the Covenant, the glory of God, was brought into Jerusalem when David was praising and worshiping God. The priests were dancing they were they were probably had tambourines they were shouting they were singing and we know david disrobed from disrobed from his royal garments was, was dancing all crazy out there you know but while this was going on the shofar was blasting and the shofar blasting had to do with the glory of god coming in isn't that powerful that god's glory coming into a place the shofar can have an effect in that Another thing was the conviction of sin and repentance, Isaiah 58. The sound of the shofar, the ram's horn, can help release a conviction of sin and help release that, that, um, the move of God that, that has to do with intercession. That's why sometimes I feel led about the shofar in our prayer meetings because there's something about the sound of that shofar that when that's released... It helps to open things up in the spirit realm. It just does. There's, there's so many times I've experienced different things with the shofar, but as we blast the shofar in the prayer meetings, you can feel the atmosphere shift, and you can feel that something changes, and the intercessors begin to move into a dimension of prayer and deep intercession that wasn't there before. It's also connected to warfare. The battle cry. The walls of Jericho came down at a shofar blast as the people shouted and blasted the shofar. Angels of the Lord seemed to be released at the shofar blast. Gideon, with 300 men, saw this huge massive army of like 100,000 some odd people. I don't remember the numbers, but they were grossly outnumbered. I mean, with 300 men. But as they all blasted that shofar, the enemy was thrown into total confusion. They began to kill each other and flee. And Gideon, with a handful of men, conquered a huge army with the shofar blast. What I'm trying to say is this. When we're blasting that shofar here in the spirit realm, what Israel had in the natural, we have in the spiritual. When we're blasting that shofar, Israel had something that was a shadow and type of, of the fullness that we have in Christ now. Israel's battles were in the natural. Our battles are in the spiritual. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's princes and powers. 
when we're standing here and we're blasting the shofar, something is happening in the spirit realm where the demonic is being confused, strongholds of the enemy are breaking down, the angelic is released. It's a powerful weapon of war. If you think about it, it's an instrument that is piercing through the sound. It's like the sound is piercing and opening things up. Jubilee is decreed at the shofar. Remember that? That every 50 years, Jubilee was decreed. Restoration, that what, that what was stolen or what was lost was restored back. This happened at a shofar blast. It seems like the shofar helps to break through where people get restoration. There have been many reported stories where people <clears throat> have been delivered of things and healed of things at the shofar blast. Are y'all hearing me? I've heard many, many stories that whenever the shofar is blasted, there's confusion in the enemy's camp, but people are healed of things. I've heard stories of people getting healed of all kinds of sickness, people delivered of things, because it's breaking down these strongholds set up against people, and it's helping to break through into their life, answer prayers, restoration. And also, there's an open heaven, Exodus 19, whenever... God was on Mount Sinai and his voice was like a shofar. There's an open heaven and there's revelation that comes at the shofar blast. And the Lord's voice is associated with the shofar. It's like John, uh, the revelator, saw in, in Revelation 4.1. It says his voice was like a trumpet. That's a shofar. Isn't that powerful? So the shofar is a weapon of war, but it's a very powerful thing. Because it's something that God uses to penetrate in the spirit realm and fight spiritual battles. Where the angels are released, where, where strongholds of the enemy come down and things in the spirit realm break open. And the shofar is awesome about that. And so I want you to understand whenever we're blasting the shofar that that's what's going on. God is opening things up. He's breaking through the darkness.